Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 16. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast featuring strange stories by strange authors for strange listeners such as yourself. Here you'll find bizarre stories, sometimes disturbing, sometimes funny, but always short. Much like life, I suppose. Well listen, I can't wait to jump into this week's Drabble News, and you're about to see why. Brought to my attention by listener Hollis Roberts. Fruithurst, Alabama. An 11-year-old Alabama boy used a pistol to kill a wild hog that just may be the biggest pig ever found. Jameson Stone's father says the hog his son killed weighed a 1,051 pounds and measured 9 feet 4 inches from the tip of its snout to the base of its tail. Think hams as big as car tires. If the claims are accurate, Jameson's trophy boar would be bigger than Hogzilla, the famed wild hog that grew so seemingly mythical in proportion before being killed in South Georgia in 2004. Hogzilla originally was thought to weigh 1,000 pounds and measure 12 feet in length. National Geographic experts who unearthed its remains believe the animal actually weighed about 800 pounds and was 8 feet long. The new record hog has become known as Monster Pig, but it also had another name, Fred. The not-so-wild pig had been raised on an Alabama farm and was sold to the Lost Creek Plantation just four days before it was shot there in a 150-acre fenced-in area the animal's former owner said. It feels real good, 11-year-old Jameson of Pickensville, Alabama said in a telephone interview. It's a good accomplishment. I probably won't ever get to kill anything else that big. Listener and Drabblecast author Adam Carvin commented in the Drabblecast Facebook forum. He says, The key word here is probably... The terrible fact is that we're probably never going to see huge badass freak animals running around and never going to let them breed and pass on their mutated badass genes because 11-year-olds like this with pistols will pump eight rounds into anything else that moves because they probably won't ever get to kill anything else that big. Flawless logic, buddy. He reminds us of Hogzilla's killer, Chris Griffin, who said... We killed it because we didn't want to take the chance of him getting away. Somebody else would have shot it if we didn't. Indeed they would have, Chris. Indeed they would have. Still, other people see the glasses half full here. Listener Brad Blainer commented, This gets me so excited. I thought Hogzilla was one in a billion. Now I see it's more than possible to raise my own boars this big. It's legal and can be done in our own backyards. That's right, Brad. 
It's a beautiful country we live in. Well, on to today's story, I-81 by Luke Coddington. Luke is the author of the highly acclaimed story, Next Stop, featured on Drabblecast 3. So, without further ado, I-81 by Luke Coddington. Tony's eyes flickered over his dashboard instruments as he engaged the cruise control on his 99 Honda Accord. Satisfied that he was just enough over the speed limit, his shoulders slumped in relaxation as he stretched his legs and reached over to pat his sleeping wife's knee. He and Carla had stumbled out of their Washington, D.C. area apartment at about four that morning, anxious to beat the traffic heading south of the metropolis for Thanksgiving. Aside from their traffic concerns, Tony was also just eager to get down to his aunt's house in Knoxville, as he hadn't seen a lot of his family since making the big move away from Georgia more than a year ago. That year had been an explosion of new experiences for Tony, who before then had never strayed more than a state or two away from his comfortable little hometown in the heart of Georgia mountain country. He'd never even driven through Virginia till now, he pondered, having taken a plane up to D.C. to begin his first job after law school as a lawyer in the office of the General Counsel to the Air Force. Though Tony enjoyed the challenge and significance of his work, he sure was glad to be out driving somewhere rather than stuck in the fluorescently lit halls of the Pentagon. The stretch of I-81 he was navigating now was really quite beautiful, with fat, green, rolling hills dipping here and there to reveal picture-book farmhouses and small, sprawling towns. As he craned his neck to take in a particularly inspiring farmstead, he saw a flash of movement in the rearview mirror, and a moment later inadvertently swerved into the shoulder as a large, darkly-colored hummer came out of nowhere and barreled past him at at least 100 miles an hour. Good Lord, he cried in frustrated indignation, and turned to Carla to deliver a coffee-fueled lecture on why that guy was an asshole, but broke it off when he noticed she hadn't even woken up, despite his oaths. Typical, he muttered, then watched in disbelief as the reckless driver of the SUV weaved in and out of the traffic ahead and picked up even more speed in an attempt to shoot the gap between two semi-trucks that were about to pass each other. His disbelief deepened considerably then, as his eyes were drawn away from the possible accident in front of him, and toward a big hill to the right of the road, from behind which an attack helicopter had just risen sinisterly. He recognized it quickly as an Apache longbow, remembering it from a recent case in which one had crashed in Afghanistan. Snapping out of his reverie, Tony stomped on the brakes, his breath catching in his throat as he watched one of the Longbow's 16 Hellfire missiles detach from its right wing and then rocket towards the road ahead of him. The missile exploded directly in front of the aggressive Hummer, knocking the nearest semi-truck over on its side and actually flipping the sturdy army-built SUV on top and then over the semi's trailer. The Hummer rolled several times and then came to a stop on its side, smoking and dented but still relatively intact. The shrieks and rumbles of this modern warfare were finally enough to wake Carla, startling her out of her seat, screaming, What the hell? and clawing in Tony's direction, desperate for protection. Tony winced as the Apache thundered over their heads toward the immobilized vehicle which had so recently drawn his ire. Another missile emitted from the lean war machine, flying too high and exploding in a copse of trees fifty yards away from the target. The Apache wheeled around and began another attack run towards the smoking Hummer, but then pulled off decisively, and in moments the roar of its rotors became only a distant rumble. 
Carla continued to babble incoherently, searching for words that could properly frame her fear and confusion, while Tony gagged a little as he spotted a mangled leg capped off by a woman's high-heeled shoe sticking out from under the overturned Hummer. They both then froze in stunned silence as the driver's side door opened upwards and a skinny white male, no older than twenty-five, clambered out and fell onto the ground, grasping from the effort. He stood up slowly, his shirt in rags around his twitching torso, and then began limping as fast as possible toward the half-mutilated trees fifty yards away. The man's ash-covered face grimaced in pain as he moved along, and in thirty seconds he had covered half the distance to the trees, but was beginning to slow down, and then fell over, his mangled body having lost most of its strength it had been granted by adrenaline. Just then, two thoughts occurred to Tony at once. First, the thunder of the retreating helicopter was growing louder again. The second, why the hell was he sitting here watching this? For all he knew, one of those fourteen remaining missiles might fly their way at any time. He gunned the engine, threw the gear shift into reverse, and righted his car on the road, grimly ignoring Carla's requests for an explanation. He had no idea what was going on, but thought it was a good idea to ask the questions from a safer distance. There were a few stalled cars around on the road, the owners gawking out of their windows at the nightmarish scene, but most had a similar thought progression as Tony, and had already gotten out of there. As he accelerated forward, getting ready to dodge the debris from the overturned tractor trailer, Tony again heard the Apache fly overhead, then pressed the accelerator pedal even harder under the floor as he heard the frantic chatter of the Boeing M-230 chain guns mounted under the helicopter's fuselage. The Accord began its final acceleration past the last obstacle, the missile crater on the road, and Tony threw one last horrified look back at the scene to his left. The reckless driver was crawling jerkily toward the trees, displaying humanity's ability to hope in even the most dire of circumstances. The attack helicopter bore down on him on its second strafing run, displaying humanity's further ability to dash each other's hopes mercilessly. A line of machine gun bullets then arced along the ground toward the driver and tore through him, leaving stillness in their wake. Tony and Carla huddled together in their car, speechless and drained as they hurtled once more along the interstate. Out of habit, Tony checked the car's acceleration once it hit 75, then figured that was fast enough anyway. If that helicopter wanted them, they couldn't outrun him at any speed. Speed certainly hadn't helped the passengers in that Hummer. What could they possibly have done to invoke the ruthless death that they had just been dealt? He was still shaking his head to try and get a grip on things when Carla's hands tightened around his arm. What is it? Tony asked, with terror rising in his voice. She merely lifted a shaking arm to point forward down the road to a small, brown sign they had wondered at many times since entering Virginia's roadways, but which now held full significance for them. They had joked passingly about it before, but it now read as a stark explanation, not a melodramatic warning, but a simple, cruel statement of fact. It read, Speed Limit Enforced by Aircraft.
Well, that was our story. I hope you liked it. That's all for this week. Be sure to comment on the website, http colon forward slash forward slash web dot mac dot com forward slash Norm Sherman. And to tell a weird friend with the weekly commute about the Drabblecast. Send in your own short weird stories of 2,000 words or less to goatkeeper at hotmail.com. Tune in next week, but until then, I'm your host, Norm Sherman, reminding you people listening in your cars right now that staying in the speed limit not only helps you avoid getting hit by helicopter fire, it also helps your gas mileage. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.